welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcasts. The Supreme Court issued two rulings on partisan gerrymandering today without resolving the key issue in the cases, whether a voting district can be so partisan it violates the Constitution. Joining us is Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, tell us about the partisan gerrymandering decisions. Hi, June. Uh, yeah, two decisions, one in the case from Wisconsin, one in the case from Maryland. And as you said, the court punted on the biggest issue, which is can you ever challenge a district or, or a map as being so partisan it violates the Constitution? Both cases were resolved on uh, procedural grounds. Uh, the, the Wisconsin one did it in a, in a what could be a significant way where they, they cast real doubt on the ability of opponents of a gerrymander to challenge an entire statewide map. They said, that in this case where you only have plaintiffs from uh, voters from certain uh, from particular districts they don't have enough of an interest in challenging this whole map at least under the legal theory they're using they don't have enough of an interest to try to knock out the entire map so where does this leave the gerrymandering question well, that's a, that's a great question. That's a $64 question. Um, the court does have another case that it could act on in the next few days from North Carolina. It's probably the strongest challenge to a gerrymander. This involves congressional districts that were designed by Republicans. They do have a voter in every district in that case. Uh, they also have the Democratic Party challenging in that case. It's possible. I don't know if it's, it's likely, but it's certainly possible. The court could say, okay, we'll resolve all these big issues next term. Uh, and, and agree to take up that case in the next few days. Greg, is it unwieldy to challenge a state map district by district and show partisanship? It, it is unwieldy, and it also uh, uh, would seem to knock out kind of a, the, the theory of why a map should be struck down. So in the Wisconsin case, the basic argument was that these districts were drawn in a way so that Republicans were highly, highly likely to maintain control of the state assembly, even if Democrats won a majority of the votes across the state. And in fact, that happened one year. Uh, if you're having to challenge uh, districts on a district-by-district district basis, where it's a voter saying, um, my vote isn't counting for as much as it should uh, uh, because of the way they drew my particular district, it's a little harder to see how uh, a court would be able to step back and say, I want to throw out, we're going to throw out the entire map because it is too tilted towards one party or another. Did Justice Elena Kagan's concurring opinion sound a little like a dissent? <laughs> I don't know if I would say a dissent, but it's certainly very important. What, what Justice Kagan said was, um, I agree with the majority that the plaintiffs here don't have standing to pursue a particular type of claim, which is that their votes were diluted so that they, they didn't mean as much. But there's a whole different theory called uh, under the First Amendment and, and the, the right under the First Amendment, uh, the freedom of association under the First Amendment. And, and she said that whole theory is not really the focus of the Wisconsin case. And in my view, she says, uh, and, and she had the votes of four justices, um, uh, there's no no reason why a case like that couldn't go forward. So there's at least an opening there, but the, the court as a whole said we're not getting to that issue that Justice Kagan was just talking about. So 
You talked about how this is a, a narrower look, and this isn't the first time this term that we've seen the justices sidestep side what was seen by many as the major issue in the case. Is this a pattern we might see in some of the cases that are coming up? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, June. Uh, you're, you're no doubt thinking about the Masterpiece Cake Shop case where the court didn't decide this big issue of whether th- there's uh, business has a free speech or religious right to refuse to, to serve people uh, for a, a same-sex wedding. Uh, the court resolved that case on narrower, narrower grounds, too. Um, with the cases going forward, things like the, the, Internet, whether, uh, the Internet sales tax and whether Internet retailers can be required to collect tax, uh, the Trump travel ban, uh, the issue of mandatory union fees for public sector workers, it's a little harder to see. I'm not going to say impossible, but it's harder to see how those cases uh, are, are amenable to some sort of compromise ruling uh, that, that, that sidesteps the big issues. It seems like, from where I sit, that with those big cases, the court is going to have to confront uh, the core issues. We shall see, Greg. There was another case today that was decided which didn't get much play at all. So tell us about that. Oh, I had I, I had three cases that were decided. Oh, today. Okay. Three other <laughs> see, cases. the third one didn't get any. I'm going to guess you're talking about Mr. Lozman, who is yes. a, uh, a man who uh, has some issues with his uh, local government in R- Riviera Beach, uh, Florida. Uh, he was arrested while while making some remarks at a city council meeting, and he um, uh, sued for retaliatory uh, a First Amendment retaliation or for retaliatory arrest. Um, and the, the court essentially revived his claim. It didn't say for sure he's entitled to a new. He, he lost a trial, and it didn't say for sure that he's entitled to a new trial. But uh, it, it did suggest that he he may have a claim for uh, retaliation under the First Amendment. And the third decision that I. Oh, there are two Don't more, but I'll tell you, <laughs> there, there are two more, and I'm going to confess, June, I have not gotten to those yet. Um, well, we're waiting for the big, you know, this the gerrymandering was one of the ones that we were waiting for. So now it, we have it, how many sessions left to, to hear how many opinions? We'll probably have three or four uh, sittings left. We have 14 more opinions. We've, we've mentioned Internet sales taxes, travel ban, union fees. Uh, there's a cell phone privacy case uh, that is very important. Uh, there's a case that's really important to American Express. It involves their what's called their anti-steering policy, where they require they forbid merchants from uh, steering customers to cards that, that charge lower fees. Uh, that, that's an antitrust case. The court could revive a government claim against American Express. That's very important. And then, of course, uh, after the court issues its last opinions, we'll all hold our breath till we see whether or not any justice says he or she's going to retire. <gasps> oh, that would be Justice Kennedy we're thinking about. Thanks so much, Greg. And that's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Let's turn now to a new appointment by President Trump. Speaking with Bloomberg earlier this year, OMB director and acting CFPB chief Mick Mulvaney explained his concerns about the structure of the agency that was created under the Dodd-Frank Act. The structure is is completely, uh, uh, it's irrational. I have way too much uh, authority as an individual. So who does President Trump want to give that authority to run one of the most politically divisive agencies in Washington? Kathy Craninger. If you don't recognize her name, you're not alone. Joining me is Christopher Peterson, a professor at the University of Utah Law School. Christopher, a lot of people were Googling that name when it was announced. Tell us about her. Well, I had to Google her, too. 
Um, uh, it's a new name to me as well. Um, she, she is a, currently a, a, a lieutenant, so to speak, to Mick Mulvaney, the director of office and management uh, and budget, who's also simultaneously serving as the director of the CFPB. Um, she's got a, 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 a background um, in in various federal regulatory agencies, but she doesn't have any experience in consumer protection or banking. She worked as a clerk in the uh, in the Senate, um, and worked at the Department of Transportation for a little while, but really doesn't have a, a track record to evaluate on the kind of consumer protection issues that the Consumer Bureau is focused on. So progressive groups and consumer advocacy groups are calling this a political stunt and a way to ensure that Mulvaney stays in the job longer. How do you evaluate this? Well, it's hard not to think that that's what's happening here. Uh, Given all of the concern that conservatives expressed over the years about how much power this uh, director has, to turn it over to somebody that has never worked at a bank or a credit union and has no experience whatsoever that's discernible in doing any of the kinds of federal regulatory work that this agency does, seems like a pretty big surprise. So I think that the I think that the likely outcome is that this is going to delay consideration of a of a permanent director and is probably going to keep director Mulvaney in control of the agency. So from what you just said, do you think that she will not be confirmed? Well, I think it's tough to say. I can imagine that some Democrats will be tempted to call the president's bluff and confirm her in order to try and uh, get something done. But I I don't know that I have a crystal ball on that. I do think that it's a very controversial nomination. uh, And what it does, at least immediately in the short term, is it allows uh, Mick Mulvaney to continue to operate as the acting head of the agency under the Federal Vacancies Reform Act. So that statute is a statute Congress passed that that allows allows um, the president to have temporary um, heads of agencies while um, for 210 days after a vacancy uh, it, it opens up or during a period of time in which uh, a, a nominee is pending before the Senate. And so, in effect, uh, Mulvaney's term was coming up at the end of during this week, and this allows him to continue to be in charge until the Senate acts. Just about 30 seconds, uh, Christopher, do we are we ever going to get someone that that uh, consumer advocates want in this job as long as President Trump is in office and he opposes it? Just about 20 seconds. (laughs) Sorry. Sure, no problem. Uh, well, I think it. I think it's, uh, it's something that the public deserves. You know, the Trump administration has had seven months to find someone to run this important watchdog agency, and it's remarkable that somehow they still have managed to pick a nominee with no discernible experience in consumer protection or banking. All right, thanks the so public- much. I appreciate it. That's Christopher Peterson, a professor at the University of Utah Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com/slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.